Amen. Amen. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much for sharing that testimony. I've enjoyed all of our testimonies. Uh, thank you for uh, participating, each of you that have been doing that. Each Sunday, we've been playing a different one. And uh, just, I told Brother Justin, I said, man, on this one, we got to pass out the tissues. It's just it's going to be rough. But thank you so much for that. Uh, today's lesson has a little bit to do with uh, what Michelle shared in a way. We're going to talk about God's plan and providence and also suffering. If you have encountered suffering in your life, you might sometimes wonder why. Uh, we don't always think that it's supposed to be in our life as a Christian, and we'll talk about that as we get to it. Yeah, we have been in this series now for a few weeks, and we've been taking different characters of the Bible and doing a sort of a brief biography on them. And today, uh, if we were to interview our character, he might say something to you like this. I was born in around 5 AD in a Roman citizen, as a Roman citizen in the town of Tarsus. My family moved to Jerusalem when I was not yet 10 years of age. And I began to be mentored by a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. I learned to speak many languages and observe the law of God carefully. As a young man, I advanced in the ranks of the Pharisees and made it my life's mission to hunt down those who followed the one called Christ. I was on such a mission heading to Damascus when Jesus interrupted my journey. And by his grace, that day I accepted him as Lord of my life and surrendered to serve him. My name is Paul and this is my testimony. So today we're going to take a look at the Apostle Paul. Some have called, I think it was Chuck Swindoll in his book on the Apostle Paul, called him the Apostle of Grace and Grit. We're going to take the first part of that and call him the Apostle of Grace. As I was preparing for this, I was actually searching for key words that might define Paul's life. It's difficult to describe someone like Paul, as has been our challenge with a few of the people that we've studied so far in a single lesson. We did take several to talk about David. So I thought about taking several to talk about Paul, but I feel like we can sort of capsulize his life and this, his being the apostle of grace today. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of look at three areas of his life and how grace applied. And I think that one word, as I was searching for words to describe his life, I came up with a, a plethora of them. And, uh, and I kept coming back to this one thought. I think the word grace says it all. The word grace says it all. Now, if you have studied the subject of grace, you may have come across a number of different things pertaining to grace. There are people who teach uh, a number of types of graces, and if you study it out, you'll come across terms like common grace and prevenient grace and justifying grace and sanctifying grace and all sorts of types of graces. I don't know that there's really, I, I think, let me say it another way. I think scholars have complicated the subject. May I say that to you? I really believe that. I think we try to get more, ultimately grace just simply means God's unmerited favor on us. We didn't do anything to deserve it. Now, I know it applies in different areas of our life. I understand that. But still, I think ultimately it boils down to God favoring us when we did not deserve it. And so we're going to look at some areas of Paul's life. And before I do, I want to say some people think of the word grace as that 
prayer that you say before your meal. Many of you may have heard the story of Johnny and his mama. They went over to visit the grandparents, you know, and they arrived there. And Grandma had prepared one of her signature meals. And Johnny just sat down and began shoveling food into his mouth. And his mama said, no, 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 no. You know we always pray before we eat. He said, well, mama, that's at home. We don't have to pray here. She knows how to cook. <laughs> so uh, for whatever that's worth... So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at three areas of Paul's life. If you have a study sheet, and I hope that you do in front of you, you can fill in the blanks as we go. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's where we're going to launch from. Uh, there are many, many verses that we're going to look at, but um, we're going to look at these three areas in Paul's life. Now, I do want to get something out of the way because... Um, uh, you know, Abraham, we studied Abraham, and we, when we started reading about Abraham, he had the name Abram, and God changed his name. And there are some people that think God changed the name of Saul to Paul, but in reality, it is more, like that, uh, more likely that uh, he had both names from birth. He was in a, an area, although he was in uh, Tarsus when he was born, with a heavily Greek influence, he probably had the name Saul from his birth and also the name Paul. And he began to make the switch in his name, the use of his names, simply because he no longer was ministering to the Hebrews with the Hebrew name Paul, but he chose to use a more Gentile-like name in the name Paul when he ministered to the Gentiles. And so we don't think that God changed his name. We think he went by a different name uh, that already was his, probably from birth just to let you know that. Having said that, let's take a look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. By the way, it is believed that Paul was used by God to write some 13, maybe 14, if you count the book of Hebrews, of the books of the New Testament. Out of the 27 books of the New Testament, Paul wrote 14 of those. I happen to believe he wrote Hebrews also, but whether you believe that or not, you can say that he wrote a great deal of the books that you and I use. That means... As an evangelist, as a missionary, as an influencer, he has done more in his writings, that is, God has done more through him, to influence us and grow us than anyone else. Anyone else. So he becomes a very interesting character to study. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we find these words beginning in verse 9. If you're there, say, I'm there. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, did you catch that? Very important. We're going we're gonna to read a lot of verses about the grace of God. So pay attention to them, obviously, when you see them. If you have, them, if you have your Bibles open, you might want to underline them. Or if you have an electronic Bible, you might want to highlight it uh, if, you, if you have the tools to do that. So by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Now, now I believe Paul the Apostle is saying in this text, look, you, you need to understand that I have been chosen as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, not due to anything in me whatsoever. That's what he's saying. I'm the least of all the apostles. Don't even compare me to those guys. I'm not worthy to be an apostle. If you knew what I did, and many of us do because we've studied it out before, we know that he gave his word, and we'll read some of those, those verses in just a moment. We know that he gave his word against 
against the, the Lord's church, and he had people put in prison, even had them put to death. We know that. So he said, I'm not worthy to be what I am. And then he uses this phrase, I am what I am. We sometimes misuse that phrase. We use that phrase as an excuse for us not to change, as an excuse for us not to let the Holy Spirit modify us and change us in our life, to improve us in our Christian life. We say something like, well, you know, I am just who I am. Well, you ought not be who you used to be, and you're not yet what you're going to be if the Lord's at work in your life. And so Paul is not using that as an excuse. He's saying, if you look at what I am, that is the position of the apostle, I didn't get here by me and by what I did. I got here by the grace of God. And so we'll talk more about this as we make our way through this. Uh, and it's so very important that we establish this. So, so the, the saving grace, I want you to notice God's saving grace first and foremost. This is the first point in your outline if you want to fill in the blank. We're going to see God work in Paul's life. The first way is through his saving grace. We probably know the story, many of you do, if, you, if you've not grown up in church. And, and I want to say, you know, we do reach in this day and age people who have not had the opportunity, as some others have, of growing up in a Sunday school. And it's very possible somebody's joining us online, or maybe you came into church today and you don't have that background. Often I'll have somebody come to me after a service and say, Pastor, you said that was familiar to everybody, but it wasn't to me. I didn't know that. I've never heard that story. And so in the book of Acts, three times it is recorded the Damascus journey salvation of the Apostle Paul. Three times it's recorded when it actually takes place, if you will, in Acts chapter 9. He then gives an account of it in Acts 22. And again, he gives an account when he stands before King Agrippa in Acts 26. So three times the story is recorded. We probably are, if you, again, if you've been in church in a length of time, somewhat familiar my goal is to not necessarily pick apart the salvation story, but I want to read a little bit of it to you. And I'm going to start out of a text in Acts 22 as he was speaking. He said this in verse 3 and 4. I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God as you all are today, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Now, here's a little interesting side note. Uh, today, of course, is Palm Sunday. We heard that earlier, and you might be wondering, why are we studying the Apostle Paul on Palm Sunday? We don't always follow necessarily the calendar, uh, but next week I do. I am led to preach on the resurrection, uh, but, no. but uh, we're going to talk about that, of course, throughout Easter. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, but Palm Sunday. So, so here's a question for you and, and, and an observation. Paul the Apostle was born around 5 AD. And it is said that his family moved to Jerusalem when he was about anywhere from 5 to 10 years old. It was in that time frame that the family moved in. Paul himself on several occasions, now that you know this, you will see it when you read the stories of the Apostle Paul. In Acts 26, for instance, he talks about being uh, raised or living from his youth in Jerusalem. So he grew up in Jerusalem. Paul's age is somewhere around 10 years younger than Jesus would have been, given his earthly life, mind you, not that he was, has always been as the word, but 
his, his earthly life. So Paul would have been born somewhere around 10 years after the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem at age 33 and was about to be crucified on Palm Sunday, as we know it, as he rode in, in that triumphant entry, Paul the apostle would have been in his early 20s. He would have been raised and mentored at the feet of one of the leading rabbis, Gamaliel. Do you think he probably encountered, if not physically the Christ, at least he would have known who he was at that time? He would have. And he may have even seen the Lord or heard a message of some kind as he began to think who he was. He settled on believing what the Pharisees and Sadducees were all saying, which is he's an imposter, don't believe him. That's where he settled. And so he began to persecute those who would follow the Christ. But it does not mean that he did not know who Christ was. Now we have no documentation except to say that in his testimony to King Agrippa in Acts 26 verse 26, Paul was telling Agrippa, I know that you are aware of Jesus because what he did, he did not do in a corner. And that's a reference to, he didn't do it secretly. He did it openly and publicly, and you're aware of it. And I think Paul was saying, I was aware of it also. But he chose to go a different route initially. But later, thank God, he did meet Jesus. And he met him on the road to Damascus. This is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. He appears to Paul. All the apostles, by the way, in order to be an apostle, you had to have witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ. So all those people out there today, you drive by their church and you see apostle whoever on their sign, that's not an apostle, man. To be an apostle, you had to, well, I, I don't think they saw Jesus, but if, if, if they did, they need to come let us know. But you're, uh, to be an apostle, there were two qualifications to be an apostle. One, you had to have witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ. And number two, you had to have been taught personally by Jesus. Paul, you might remember in his life, we're not going to study that, but he was taken out into the desert where he stayed for three years. And things were revealed to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. So he qualified as an apostle. In this text, the Bible tells us, as we keep reading the story, we're going to pick up in chapter 26 of Acts and read more of the story, beginning in verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ. That's what he was bent on. He's, he's giving you his testimony. His testimony is, there was a time in my life when I not only persecuted the Lord, but I thought I had to do many things against this person known as Jesus. And then he goes on in his testimony, verse 10. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Can you imagine this? Paul is, is speaking to King Agrippa in this, in this chapter, and he is trying to explain that he was so zealous for his faith he fought against Jesus and he fought against all those who followed him, even down to not just imprisoning them because they claimed to be Christian, but even putting them to death. He gave his word. He said, this is what needs to happen to these people. Now, I want you to remember this because the salvation story of Paul is awesome. The grace of God is evident. 
But even more than that, and we're going to look at it in just a moment, what he had to overcome in his history, what he had to overcome from his past, that's hard for us to imagine. Hard for us to imagine. So somewhere, somehow, maybe somebody in this building, maybe somebody watching online, you may be thinking something like this. I've heard this story of Jesus, but you don't know what I've done in my life. Well, I'm telling you, Jesus knows what you did in your life. And chances are, it's not near what the Apostle Paul did when he was Saul of Tarsus. And even if it was, we find in the scripture, Jesus died for those sins and you don't surprise Jesus by anything you've done. And grace is all about God's unmerited, unearned favor. You can't do anything to get that favor. It's not by our works. It has nothing to do with our good works outweighing our bad works. It just has to do with his love for us and the grace that he poured out on us. So the story goes on in verse 12 of Acts 20. Six, Paul said, while thus occupied, meaning while I was in the midst of persecuting Christians, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, I love that. Paul spoke several languages, by the way, but God, when he spoke to Paul, he spoke to him in a Hebrew language. And I, you know, one of the applications I think we need to make is this. God knows how to speak to you where you understand him. You understand it's the Lord. Now, it won't be audible like in Paul's case. It could be. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not limiting God. I just know that the majority of the time, God doesn't speak audibly anymore. He speaks through his word. And so when he speaks to you, though, he will speak to you in a manner that you can understand him. He calls him by his name. And often when there's a double name used like this, it's almost the equivalent of us using someone's middle name. Like that child of yours, Amanda Gale, Amy Renee. It's when they're in trouble as they get it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord now, this is a very interesting phrase. It's capitalized in my Bible. Paul, and, and, and if, and I, and I understand this is speculation, so forgive me, you might not approve of this, but if Paul had heard about Jesus, and I think he had, if Paul maybe had seen Jesus, and I think he probably had, he lived in Jerusalem. He was not, uh, he was not isolated from all of the stuff that was going on. He was actually, as a young student being mentored to become a rabbi, he was in the discussionary meetings that would have involved even the Sanhedrin. He would have heard all of the stuff that we read about in this Passion Week of Jesus Christ. I think he would have known. And I think he's asking, is this you? Have I had it wrong all this time? Is it you, Lord? And it was. I'm Jesus, he said, whom you are persecuting. Now, there's a, a great application of this too, but I don't want to get distracted. Paul said he had persecuted the Christian. He was arresting Christians and putting them to death. Jesus said, you're persecuting me. What you do to his church, you do to him. The church belongs to the Lord and he and the people who gather, we are one. And what you do to the church, you do to him. 
And, and I, I find that interesting. So here we have this wonderful story of grace. Paul talked about it when he wrote to the church at Ephesus and he said this in Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For by grace you have been saved. By faith, it said, through faith, through faith. Now, now here's an interesting point. I, I have talked with people and I, I strongly disagree with this view, but I, I don't even know why I'm sharing it with you. Uh, but I, I want to I try to um, emphasize something with you, if I may. Uh, let me go ahead and get a little bit ahead of myself. There's this wonderful passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 10 that reads this way, beginning in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13 reads this way, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I've actually had people say to me, Pastor, you, you, uh, you need to understand that we are so depraved that we can't even call on the Lord. And yet I read in my Bible time and time again, the Bible says that when we exercise faith, and we confess with our mouth, and we call on the Lord, then we can be saved. That's a contradiction. And I want to say to you, you can call on the Lord. Now, you will not call on the Lord if he does not lead you to do so. Understand me. He will pursue you, and I think this is very important. We talked about Abraham growing up in a home of an idolater, and, and Abraham was not seeking God, but God was seeking him. And now I want to tell you about Paul, who was Saul from Tarsus. He was not seeking God. The opposite was true, but God pursued him. All of us who say things like, you know, when I finally found God, you weren't finding him. He was finding you. We're saved by grace. It's nothing we have done. He loves you so much. Luke 19.10 tells us, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you respond to the invitation to be saved today, if you respond to that invitation, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, it's not because you've been seeking him out. It's because he's been seeking you out and you finally said yes to him. Okay, Lord, I hear you. I hear you. And that's what Paul did that incredible day. There's another passage of scripture that I have to share with you in, in light of his, the, the Lord's saving grace that was applied to Paul. And I find this in uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 6. For if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Now, that might sound like a bit of a tongue twister to you and a little bit confusing, but literally, he's saying this. You're either saved by what Jesus did for you, or you try to be saved by what you do for yourself. There's no combination. And when you try to be saved by what you did for yourself, it's not salvation at all, because that's not acceptable. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's not good enough to get us to heaven. So we have to be saved only by the grace of God through faith in what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. That is the only way. So there are people today who try to mix and mingle a little bit of works with a little bit of faith. Some people say, well, you trust Jesus, but you got to go through the baptismal water. And when you go through the water, well, that's a work. Baptism is a work. 
Somehow that water helps wash away your sin. And that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. If it involves works, it ceases to be grace. If it is grace, there's no work. Some people say, well, that's ridiculous. No work. I know. Isn't it great? (laughs) It's awesome, man. You can't do anything to get. It's just God gives it to you. It's a wonderful thing. So having said that, there are others who believe, well, you can get saved by faith, but then you got to be good in order to keep it. So you hear some people say, when you ask them, have you ever been saved? They say something like this. Well, I hope I am. Because in their teachings of their churches, they've been taught that they're on probation. But that's not what the scripture says. When a person trusts Christ as their savior, they immediately get eternal life. They have the Holy Spirit that indwells them. It's a remarkable, it's an instantaneous kind of deal, man. And the Holy Spirit not only indwells you, but then he seals you. What does that sealing mean? That work of the Holy Spirit is important because that means the moment that you got saved, when you get to heaven and Jesus, so to speak, cracks that seal like a, like a can of preserves, what it means is you are just as freshly saved at that day, in that instance, as you were when he first washed away all of your sin. You don't have to work to keep it. You can't work to keep it. You did nothing for it and you can do nothing to keep it. He saved you and he can keep you saved. The saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you probably heard this verse, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, Paul said to young Timothy, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, he said. I was reading Chuck Swindoll on this phrase of the Apostle Paul, and he said this, Don't try to soften that remark. You say, oh, well, it couldn't have been that bad. Understand the words of the old hymn, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me. Paul believed he was the chief of sinners. Swindoll added, and he may have been. It's hard for us to imagine how horrible his life was and what he did against God. Hard to understand all of that. But that's the amazing grace of our God. So we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he said. He said, I'm chief, but we've all sinned, man. We've all fallen short. He went on to say, but God demonstrated his own love toward us. As he wrote to the Romans in Romans 5 and verse 8, he demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You say, you don't know how terrible my life is. Well, I don't know how terrible Paul's was to that extent either, but I can tell you that God loves you and Jesus died on the cross for your sin and for my sin. He did that for us. The payment is available. The blood has been shed and accepted, but you have to claim it. So very important. So let me talk to you about God's saving grace and then his serving grace. Secondly, God's serving grace. So Paul, we understand, received the saving grace. You and I may have had that. I hope that you have. I have. There was a time in my life when I trusted Christ. And I hope that you do that. If you haven't already done it, you'll have an opportunity in a little bit if you'd like to do it during this service even. But let me talk to you about the serving grace. This also was not dependent upon the life that Paul had lived or what he did in his life. 
In Acts chapter 26, when he was telling more of his story, he finishes uh, or continues, beginning in verse 15. Uh, so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will reveal to you. Now, there is a remarkable verse of scripture. I think it's remarkable. I use it a lot. Some of you uh, who have ever been to me for counsel, I may have used it with you. It's one of my favorite verses of scripture. I've probably quoted it five or six times this week alone in talking to people. It's an incredible verse. It is a verse that I don't think you and I, at least I, I'll just speak to my, about myself for a moment. I don't think I fully understand what is said in a portion of this. So let me read you the verse. It'll probably be familiar to most. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Paul said, I wish you would think like I think concerning this. And, and, and the way I think is this, I have not arrived. That's what the word apprehended means. I have not reached a level where I think I'm, I'm good enough for anything. And indeed, that is the case. So he's saying this, but, but I have learned to do this. He said, this one thing I do. Now, uh, I think I've shared this with you before, but let me talk about it just a second and labor it a moment with you. It sounds like two things. He said, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to the things that are before me. That sounds like two things, but it's one thing because if you don't let go of the past, you can't reach out for what God has for you. Are you hearing me? It's the grace of God. Let me tell you something about our past. The devil will use it as a bully stick. He will beat you up with it. Can you imagine what it must have been like at night for the Apostle Paul when he pillowed his head and he thought about all that he had done against God. For the Apostle Paul to say, I have learned to forget those things which are past. How does a person do that? He said he was the chief of sinners. How do you arrive at that? If it were not for the grace of God, are you following me? If it wasn't for the fact that God chose us and wants to use us and he has a purpose for you, not because of who you are and what you've done, but because that's what he decided to do. I want to use you, God said. How does he want to use you? What is your purpose? What do you Ask God what your purpose. Now, some people get a little convoluted with this thing, and I don't think it's all that uh, crazy, um, Matthew 5, verse 16 said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Every one of us, if you're, if you're in debate about what your purpose is, I can guarantee you a couple of things. I can guarantee you that, number one, you have been called to let your light shine that you might glorify God. That means you share your story and you talk about God's providence and you talk about his blessings and you talk about the grace that he shed upon you in your life and how he saved your soul and you let them know why so you can bring glory to God. That's why we breathe ultimately. That's why we're here to bring glory to God. 
And then I come across this text, 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 17. Such a powerful text. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Wait a minute. All of us have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Well, what in the world is that? Somebody might say, what does that mean? That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them as he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So Paul said this. Paul said, do you understand God has called you to a ministry? Now, maybe you're not a pastor, maybe you're not even a deacon or an elder, or maybe you don't teach a class or lead a life group, or maybe you're not even involved in service somehow uh, this morning, but God has given you a ministry, and it's called the ministry of reconciliation. Sin separated man from God. God said, I want you to tell them how to get it right. God said, I'm giving you the ministry of reconciling them to me. Tell them what I did for them on the cross of Calvary. Tell them what I did when I provided them salvation by grace. Tell them and bring them to me that I can redeem them. Buy them back. You have the ministry of reconciliation. You're an ambassador. An ambassador. I was getting some blood work done this week and I sat down in the chair and the little lady, she looked at me and she said, so so what do you do? And I said, well, I, I pastor East Point Church. You probably heard of it. It's the greatest church in the world. And I don't know if she's here today, but I, I invited her to come. And uh, so we talked a little while. And, and when I was studying this, uh, and I, I could have said, well, I'm an ambassador. <laughs> you could say that too. Once uh, this, this, uh, this came to mind as I, was, as I was preparing this, and I'll share the story with you kind of quickly because I want to get into that last, that last point with you. And I only have about an hour left to speak. Um, but... Uh, we were filling out our paperwork. We were missionaries to Australia. And as we were arriving into the country of Australia, we, uh, we had never done anything like this. I was, I was uh, very young. I was in my mid-20s when we first went over. And, and I'm filling out all the paperwork, and it asks what your occupation is. And so I put minister. Well, if you know anything at all, we have some people here from uh, Europe. Um, and uh, minister in Australia and in other European-influenced countries means that you're a government official. I just thought I was a preacher. I didn't know. So I fill out the, I'm filling out the form and I write minister. So I get to customs and I'm standing in line and they get my, they get my form and one of them says to the other one, they show it, he's a minister. He's a minister. And I'm thinking, well, that's cool. They love preachers here, man. <laughs> and so they waved me on over, got me on through pretty quick and and then I heard one of them say, yeah, he's a, he's a government minister. And I started to say, no, I'm not. And then I thought, I could go to jail or something impersonating. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. So I slipped on into the country. They all thought I was a government official, but it was really funny. So you're, a, you're an ambassador for Christ, man. You represent him. You go out in the day, you're representing him. Now, I know not everything is always what you want it to be. And you don't always have on your face the kind of I'm saved by grace, look. But you are. 
and you've even been called to serve by his grace. It was not something that we have done. Paul said it very clearly, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I don't deserve to preach the gospel. There's no question about that. You don't deserve to do what you do either. We don't deserve to be ambassadors for Christ, but it's through his grace that we do what we do, that he calls us to minister and serve him. Last of all, and I apologize that I've not gotten to this point earlier because it's so very important, I want you to hear me, about God's suffering grace, God's suffering grace. Some of you have gone through some great heartache in your life and some of you are going through it right now. And you might be wondering about that heartache. It, um, it is thought among most Christians, particularly the Christians in the United States, and I say that because we have a very good life. The things that we complain about are, uh, if you ever go to a, another country, you, you stop and realize we shouldn't be complaining about those things to begin with. But nonetheless, we do because we believe somehow we have tied into our minds that if we're a Christian and we're serving God, we have experienced such comfort when we suffer. We don't know what to do with it. And we think it's all of the devil and that something must be wrong. God must be punishing me or why would he do this? There's some sort of a judgment here or He's allowing the devil to get to me. He's allowing this. And that's the way we think. That is not always the case. And in the Apostle Paul's life, he teaches us a little bit about suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, it reads this way, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now, can I pause there for a moment? The word thorn in the Greek literally means a sharply pointed stake. Now, there are many theories about what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Some say that it was epilepsy. Others say that it was an eye disease that was robbing him of his vision, causing him to be blind. Others say that it was some sort of a muscular disease causing deformity to his body. Others have, have just looked at the text itself and tried not to say anything beyond that, and that is, it's a messenger of Satan who beats him on a regular basis. Imagine for a moment what it is like to have a sharp stake poked in you constantly from time to time. I actually have had something in the last couple of weeks that's almost similar. I, I have, I, those of you that were at the, at the uh, marriage conference found out, uh, my old coach who was teaching some of it, told you I have a torn meniscus in my right knee. And I was trying to describe the pain to my dear wife about a week ago when it was very severe. And I said, well, it's kind of like this. You find the kneecap and where the two bones come together and you put your finger in that little joint. Then you heat up an ice pick until it's glowing and you stick it into that joint, that's what it feels like. And if you've had that, and some of you have, you know exactly what I'm saying. If you haven't, I hope you never do. But, but it, it doesn't last long, about two minutes. But those two minutes, you're ready to go be with Jesus. You know what I'm saying? 
and it is, it is arresting. I cannot imagine what Paul said when he said, I have a thorn in the flesh. I have something going on, and, and, and it, is, it is ridiculous. It, it is a messenger of Satan. That is, God wants to allow me to have it, but Satan wants to use it in another way, and, and it, is, it, is, it is horrible. So here's what he does. Now, the apostle Paul was full-blown apostle. What do I mean by that? He had all the apostolic gifts. Paul raised the dead. He healed the sick. He had that ability, but he could not heal himself. What does he do? He calls on God like many of you have done. Verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace. Are you hearing me? My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. More than likely, and can I say this kindly? You're all spoiled. <laughs> We're all spoiled, man. To some degree, we don't like being told no. We don't like it at all. When we want to do something, we want to do it. We don't want to be told no. And when we go before God and we ask him for something, we don't like it when God says no. If your health is bad and you're asking God for healing and he's chosen not to do it, it confuses you. Why not, God? Why won't you, God? And he might be saying to you today, no, my grace is sufficient. My grace. What does that mean? How does that translate practically to what we're going through? Well, Paul, I think, explains it a little bit to us in the same text. We pick up reading he said, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches in needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What? When I am at my weakest, then I'm at my strongest. How, how, what does that mean? When you let go and you let God, God takes over and he'll provide strength that you don't have on your own. And somewhere, somehow, someone is going to see in your suffering, you're leaning on God in a way that they have never had to lean on him. And you will bring glory to God from the way that you're handling the suffering. He does not always remove the suffering, but he will give you strength. He will provide you with what you need to get through it. I know it's difficult, and in some cases, no one else can possibly understand, but God knows. There was a German theologian back in the mid-1900s by the name of Helmut Thickluck. and he came over to the United States and was interviewed concerning his observation of Christianity and he made this statement, talking about Christians in America, in the United States. He said, they have an inadequate view of suffering. An inadequate view of suffering. We access this grace that is needed through prayer. The writer of Hebrews, who I think was Paul, but the writer of Hebrews said this in chapter 4. Verses 15 and 16, the Holy Spirit said it through him. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Listen to this now. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What are the differences in mercy and grace? Mercy is when you do not get what you deserve. Grace is when you receive something you did not deserve. We need both. And when we are in time of need, we are to go boldly to the throne of grace. Don't you love the way? I love the way that the Bible refers to the throne of God. It's the throne of grace. That's where you can find it. And you might be in dire need of it even now. So Philippians 4, I want to close with this. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound, he said. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And here's our verse, guys. You've heard it. You probably have it as your life verse, many of you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. At some point in our lives, we begin to look at suffering as an opportunity for God to show himself strong, for God to show up and show off. Yes, we request healing, removal from the suffering, and there's nothing wrong with praying that way. Paul did. But if by chance he says no, will you accept the fact that he'll get you through it? Will you accept the fact that he will give you strength? Will you accept what the Bible says about you will not walk that journey by yourself? He'll be right there with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to pray for those who may be suffering and then ask you another question. But while heads are bowed, Father, we come to you, Lord, and I have to believe that given this message today, there may be some among us who are just going through very difficult times and not being able to understand what those are. And Lord, I, I confess, I don't know. I don't fully comprehend it either. But I know that you are able, Lord, you are able to take away the suffering. I pray through your grace that you will. But if you choose not to, God, I pray that you would supply great strength. Strength that will be so evident that each person suffering would realize this is God present with me, working in me, working through me, supplying my every need. And I pray for that, God. I pray for it even now at this very second for those who may be listening, for those who are gathered in this building. In Jesus' name. Well, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I wonder if there are others who say, Preacher, I heard what you said earlier about trusting Jesus as your Savior. I never made that. I've never made that decision in my life. I'd like to do that. I'd like to ask Jesus to be my Savior. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. I don't mean to 
be quick about this at all, but I want to give you a chance to say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and Lord, I want you to be my savior. So if you believe that Jesus came and died on the cross for you and you've never already asked him, that's important. If you haven't already done this, then you can do this right where you are. It doesn't matter if you're online in your living room or at home or watching by your phone, wherever you are. If you're in this building today and you want to ask Jesus, here's the simple way to do it. I'll lead you in the prayer and then you can pray it in your mind or you can say it out loud. Many times I hear people all through a congregation saying this very prayer. It simply goes like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I believe you died for me. And I ask you now to come into my heart to be my savior. Forgive me of all my sin. Give to me, Lord Jesus, the eternal life that you speak of in your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for my home in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you just prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or to stand, nothing like that. But I do want to encourage you during the invitation or the response time, maybe to seek out a counselor who will be standing down front by one of these doors. Just say to them, hey, I want you to know I prayed that prayer with the pastor today. Or before you leave this property even to catch me or one of our staff pastors and say, I prayed that prayer today. I just want you to know what a wonderful, incredible thing that is. We'd like to follow up with you. There's so much growing that needs to take place. But for now, maybe you're suffering or maybe you just need to thank God for his grace, his amazing grace. We want to give you a chance to do that. Would you stand with me, please? May God bless you. You come, you pray as the Lord leads all across the platform area while we sing. God bless you.